0: Ball hit deep in the left center field. Wise back, back. Makes the catch. What a Dwayne play. Wise makes the catch. What a play by Wise. Mercy.
1: This is the Shoeless Goat podcast. Run, run. Hello and welcome back to the Shoeless Goat Podcast, where a Cubs, White Sox, and MLB podcast. I'm again your host Nick, and I am joined by Mister Trade Deadline himself, the Mayor of Section 509, Patrick Bovard. Pat, how are you doing?
0: You know what? I'm in shambles because I heard I heard some uh, somebody say that the Cubs absolutely fleeced the Sox to get Madrigal, so that's been tough. But if I mean, if I'm being serious, it's been awesome. This this was a fun week to be on this side of the trade deadline for the first time in like. 10 years so it's it's been fun
1: yeah uh, i wish i could say the same i expected some of our favorite faces to go just not as many and for specific returns that i was looking to get that didn't happen but in any case we'll get into that for sure i think that's what we have to talk about the most um but of course we will start with how we start every week with the weekly recaps pat i'm gonna have you go first
0: Okay. Well, you know, the week itself this week for the Sox wasn't uh, the best, so I don't want to spend as much time on it, which is probably good for the brevity of the episode. But in any event, uh, they went three and four this week, which isn't terrible. It was really just a bad series in Kansas City where they went one and three, and then they went two and one against uh, the Guardians to end up the week. So kind of a bad, bad first series, Eh, not great, but good enough second series. So I'll start with Kansas City. Uh, pretty much the last two years, they had just absolutely dominated the Royals in Kansas City, so it was kind of weird to see that flip, although maybe it law of Andrew- averages something along those lines. Uh, Monday, they lost 3-4. to four. They won Tuesday 5-3, to three, and then they lost the last two games 2-3 to three and 5-0. Uh, I'm just going to keep this brief. Biggest take- takeaways from that series were Eloy first coming back, so that was great. And then on Tuesday, he powered their win. He had a three-run homer in the eighth inning to give them the 5-3 lead. That was after they intentionally walked Jose Abreu to bring Eloy up, which just was kind of a weird thing to do to walk. Well, one, I guess walk an MVP, but to bring up a silver slugger, albeit one who had only played in two games at that point, still kind of weird, but hey, worked out for the Sox, so I'll take it. Wednesday, they had a pretty good grasp on that game, but uh, Liam Hendricks gave up a home run to Salvi Perez. I believe it was in the ninth to tie it. Uh, They couldn't pull it off in extras, and Eloy left that game with a groin injury that he has still not returned from. Hoping he's back this week, but uh, who knows? Any injury at this point has just scared me, but at least it's not the peck. So uh, at this point, I'll take it for what it's worth. Cleveland, though, things turned around pretty well on the week. Um, in the midst of all the trade rumors and uh, executions, I guess you could call it, uh, they they won the series 2-1, to one, won games on Friday and Sunday to bookend the weekend and lost an absolute barn burner of a game on Saturday. Uh, kind of what I'm taking away from this series was Johan Moncada had a pretty fun moment on Friday. I don't know if you saw it, Nick, but he had a uh, Jose Canseco-esque home run at, in the first inning. Or it might have been the second, can't remember exactly. But any event, ball to center field, two outfielders collide. It hits off their mid and goes over the fence. So Johan finally gets some of, some of, some of that power uh, to help out. Saturday, Sebi Zavala was the story of the night. He had three homers in his first three at-bats, uh, which he was the first player in Major League history to have his first three home runs in the same game. Uh, very unheralded offensive player, but a good defensive player and they ended up losing that game, so that's kind of, I guess, what happens when every pitcher not named uh, Craig Kimbrell gets lit up, but still fun nonetheless. Um, You saw the debut of the Kimbrell and Hendricks bullpen duo on Sunday, which was pretty fun to have those guys at the back of the game. There's not many teams that can beat that, and it makes you feel if you get a lead going into the eighth, you're probably not going to lose it. Um, You had Brian Goodwin walk off on Sunday, and then I think Probably one of the bigger things from the weekend series, at least on the field, was the Jose Abreu situation with Cleveland. Uh, He got hit three times in the series. Friday, twice. His first at bat of the game, he got hit on the first pitch. He saw, I think it was like right around the hip, and then later in the game, James Karinchak hit him in the head on the first pitch with the fastball, which the crowd went nuts around that. You Tony Larusa booking it out of the dugout to start getting into it with their catcher. Benches empty, dugouts emptied, but that was about all it was. They kind of. Karen Shack and Abreu kind of embraced each other, kind of let it go. And then Sunday, Abreu gets hit again, almost in the head by Cal Quintrell. Uh, it was kind of like a high fastball that basically, had he not moved his arm, probably could have gotten close to the head area. So just a scary situation that, quite frankly, got tiring of seeing them throw up and into Abreu and just nothing happens as a result. Pitchers don't get warnings. Nobody gets tossed. Uh, I don't think they were trying to hit him, but when you keep throwing that somebody up and in, ball gets away from it, where's it going to hit? It's going to hit him in the head or it's going to hit him in the body? Uh, I think the Sox were getting tired of it too. Cause he saw Bray talking to Jose Ramirez after he got hit on Sunday, basically saying like, I've had enough, like you guys got to stop doing this. Uh, Sox did not retaliate though, at least by, uh, throwing at a batter, which I guess was kind of good to see. I don't know how I want them to retaliate cause I don't like throwing at batters, but I also don't like a taking, uh, dome shots throughout the weekend. But in any event, won the series two to one, I'll stop rambling there so we can, uh, keep the flow of the episode going, but yeah, not a terrible week. Just did not feel great.
1: Few things, yeah. So I saw the Karen Check thing, um, and if anyone's crazy enough to intentionally aim at somebody's head, it might be Karen Check. But I think it was uninten- unintentional, yep. and I think the reaction was ridiculous, like benches clearing and everything. Like, I that. I get it. You have to show some sort of chest in that in that point in time, but I don't think that changes
0: anything. I think, yeah, yeah? I I agree. I don't think he tried to hit him in the head. Like again, that'd be absurd. It's just more like. They were clearly have, they've been pitching him up and in all season. So when you miss, when you're throwing up and in, there's really only one place for the ball to go. And it was the fact that it was the second at bat where he got hit first pitch. Like no one else is getting hit. It's only a Breu that they're throwing up and in there. And I think it's just the thing where it's like, eventually you got to come out and do something about it. I, I don't quite know why the bullpen's emptied there. It, I, I, I get Larusa going out there. He went out there today. I, yeah, probably escalated more than it needed to. You know, me, I was sitting out in the bleachers having a good time. So I was all fired up and ready to go out there and fight Karen check myself. Uh, but yeah, just kind of a weird moment to bubble up in there. But I'm at least glad that you see Tony Larusa getting out there and getting into it with somebody showing some passion because I think that's going to reverberate well with the team moving forward.
1: Yeah, I, I, before the Cubs bullpens um, moved under the bleachers, they were on the field, so I would be sitting by those guys quite a bit. Those guys are ready to fight at the drop of a hat, or not fight, but just come out. Yeah. It's like the guy from Superbad, like, I'm dying for a fight tonight. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but um, but in, in any case, um, I, I, I they like to run out there and then not do anything. I can't remember the last time anybody who ran from the bullpen actually uh, did something about it. I think it's just what you're supposed to yeah. do. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. In any case, I also found it super interesting that – and it's something that certainly happened that I just can't remember the last time it happened where a player hit three home runs and then the team lost. And I said, wow, that's really weird. And then it happened again today, which was what we'll we'll get at. Uh, Rafael Ortega with three home runs today and the Cubs lost against the Nationals. So um, twice in one week might be a record, though, I will say, because that's pretty rare. Um, But in any case – it happened. So I'm going to just jump right into the Cubs recap, which ends with that three home run game, which is pretty cool. Uh, But in any case, the Cubs went two and five and much like the White Sox, it really wasn't about um, the record for the week. It was everything else. Of course, Um, their record sits at 51 and 56 after the week, the Reds were in town and it was a walk-off, I guess, pop-up for Javier Baez, um, which turned into a single off of Amir Garrett for the six to five victory. Javi Baez did some pretty weird but awesome showboating, kind of rowing the boat a little bit. Him and Garrett have a history from earlier in the year. And I was actually really surprised at Amir Garrett's restraint. Um, it kind of. Surprised me because he same guy who tried to fight an entire team so it would have been really interesting to see if Garrett went after Baez because I think he would have beat the crap out of him lowering his trade stock even lower than uh, Jed Hoyer seemed it was already worth anyway but in any case we'll talk baseball then we'll talk that uh, Tuesday Wednesday and Thursday back to back to back losses at the ha- hands of the Reds to lose that series seven to four eight to two and then seven to four so then you have the trade deadline you lose a lot of your key players you lose Baez Bryant, Kimbrell, Rizzo, uh, Tepera, um, you know, uh, Mariznick, among others. Uh, that might be all of them, but in any case. But they were facing the Washington Nationals, who also had somewhat of a fire sale. So it lost, you know, Scherzer and Turner, a couple other guys as well, Schwarber. So it was kind of a battle of the uh, yard sale, pretty much, what, whatever was left. Uh, Cubs lost four to three on Friday. Uh, after losing just about their, their core. Saturday was a 6-3 to win, um, and Sunday was the 6-5 to loss, in which Rafael Ortega, like I said, had three home runs and still lost the game. So um, it's just weird to see um, a lineup where it's just without, you know, I can't remember the last time those three weren't playing in the game. At least one of them was playing in the game. So it really sucks, uh, and we'll definitely get into that.
0: I think I saw something about that where the last time uh, the Cubs had a game where uh, none of Bryant, Baez, and Rizzo were on the roster was I think twenty twelve. So it's crazy yeah. that it's basically it's a decade.
1: Yeah, no, and most of that was just Rizzo just being out yep. there, and then they drafted Brian, and then yep. you know Baez came up in you know fifteen sixteen times. So yeah, no, it's it's really bizarre um, to to I guess segue let's talk you know let's talk trade headline uh we're gonna start with my somberness and then, we'll, and then we'll jump to you know your your jubilations if you will um but yeah uh as you know we had anthony rizzo go to the yankees and of course hit home run in his first game We had javier baez which is i was one i missed i was out in san francisco and i was checking my phone like crazy but for some reason had missed the bias trade. it kind of went under the radar um which was kind of bizarre actually uh to the mets Uh, And then last but not least, Chris Bryant to the Giants. Like I said, I was in San Francisco, so I was almost expecting to see him on my flight there uh, on Thursday. Didn't happen uh, a day later. Uh, But in any case, all three of them hitting home runs in their debuts for their new teams, which is, of course, so typical. Uh, All rental players, all players that could have been re-signed in some way, shape or form, all players in which they decided to let go. Curious to see if they end up bringing them back uh, after the season's over. Highly unlikely, if you ask me. And I don't think Chris Bryant would come back no matter how much money they gave him, despite Maybe. what he says. So, um, in general, uh, also you lost Kimbrel, obviously, to the to the White Sox. Um, the White Sox bullpen becomes one of the nastiest of all time. And lots of Sox Twitter has to delete all their former tweets to say that they were behind him throughout the entirety of his career. As That's Patrick's amazing. Hit- <laughs> Pat <laughs> raises his hand, uh, and Tapera too also going to the White Sox. So you get probably the two two of the better pieces of the bullpen. We already talked about Chafin to the A's last week, uh, and Mariznick to the Padres. So he's going to be a nice little uh, defensive replacement towards the end of the game, kind of guy. So he pretty much depleted the entire team. And and I, when I looked at it, I was expecting you to get higher prospects as. You know, we all were, you know, there was rumors that Joey Bart from San Francisco. um, I mean, they got the number five prospect from the Mets. I mean, from the White Sox, you get Madrigal and Cody Hoyer, which Madrigal's had his injury problems. He's a slap hitter, which is great, but um, I don't know. You're going to, you're going to, you know, be very, we're going to have different opinions on this, but, and I don't think it's crazy to think that the Cubs should have gotten, if not close to Michael Kopech, then Michael Kopech, Kopech for, for Craig Kimbrell. And I know I'm going to get eviscerated for this, but at the same time, that's my thought process. And as I mentioned to you previously, you have to look at a similar trade that the Cubs uh, had, and that was for Araldis Chapman in 2016. And to do that, they had to get rid of their, I would say top prospect, Labor Torres at the time, um, just to get a rental player. Now, Kimbrell has another year of control, so I almost think the return has to be more. And what upsets me the most about it is Jed Hoyer was on the, I mean, the, He was on. They were both on the right side of the trade because the Cubs won the World Series. But he was on the if in a vacuum, the losing side of the trade. So he saw what had happened, and then he took it on the chin again with the White Sox with another year of control. You could have tried this again next year uh, for a rental Kimbrel, right? But instead, you took um, guys that the White Sox were very okay giving up. So. I would have said Crochet, maybe. I was going to say shoot for Kopech, if not, hold on to it or see if you get a better offer.
0: Yeah, I obviously, I I mean, I think regardless of whether or not it's ridiculous to give up Kopech, I think the thought the White Sox had going into the deadline in general is that they were not going to give up somebody that they needed to contribute this year. And they 100%, there's no way they win this year without Michael Kopech or Andrew Vaughn. We're not, I don't really want to talk about Andrew Vaughn here, but without them on the team, they're not as good of a team this year. Nick Madrigal's hurt, so he's not helping you this year. I said, so I think he was number one. Like, if that's if they're willing to take him, right? Had great player. I'm not going to, you know, go Steve Stone on him like he did on the score yesterday uh, and eviscerate the guy. But he, you know, he's a, he is what he is. He's a good player. He's not, I don't think, ever going to be a star that develops unless he develops power. What he's going to be is a guy that needs to hit 320 plus to be a like I would say, star quality MLB player, which is just really hard to do in this day and age. Makes a lot of contact, but at a time that can be, you know, kind of a detriment if you're just poking the ball out, not as good defensively as I would have thought, but I mean, that could just be a timing thing. But overall, I think if you're the white Sox, you traded probably an MLB ready guy that has the lowest ceiling out of anybody that you could have theoretically dealt. When I heard the trade went down, I thought it was going to be uh, crochet. was my thought. So when it was magical, I was happy with that. Obviously it sucks losing the guy, but he's not helping you win this year. You got Cesar Hernandez to cover for next year. Makes sense to me. Um, I don't know. I could go on and on all I want. I don't, I think like, I don't think if Kopech was it, the White Sox wouldn't have made the trade. I think also interesting to look back if Madrigal doesn't pop his hamstring a month and a half ago, do they make that trade? I, I don't think so.
1: Yeah. And I, you know, I'm well versed in, in hamstring injuries. So (laughs) I understand that that's the risk too. I mean, you look at Jonas Hespides who keeps re-injuring his and, I also want to see why Yoelki Cespedes wasn't part of this package. Because if you're not looking to compete, then why are you trading for MLB talent in general? Uh, clearly, the Cubs are not looking to compete. They're probably hoping for a full season strike next year, and they're almost banking on it. Um, but in any case, I'm just yeah. I mean, you have your three your three best players, your four best players basically uh, trade them away, and do not get any of the top prospects from the teams you got. You know, you sent them to. I think the Cubs were holding the cards but they were so willing to deal that they were actually the desperate ones, which is crazy because they have nothing to lose by. I mean, either you trade these guys and get exactly what you're asking for, or you hold on to them and just say, fuck it. I don't know. I just, I don't, you know, maybe the guys they trade for, you know, end up being great players, but um, there's a reason they're not ranked as high as the other guys that were ahead of them. It's because, I mean, you look at, you know, batting average is dumb, but I mean, you look at a lot of these guys. A lot of these guys that they got back were, you know, in the minors, two thirty to two fifty hitters, and the pitchers who have the ERAs and in in the fours to fives. It's like, okay, maybe they have great stuff, but it doesn't matter if they can't, you know, get outs or anything. I'm, a, I'm a, it's a Phillips esque rant. I'm sorry, but I'm just really um, upset with the return. If you're gonna basically implode the franchise, which is what they did, um, and send them to, you know, I mean minor contenders really i mean san francisco now is a major contender with bryant the mets now are a major contender with bias and um you know the yankees have some work to do but i mean rizzo's tearing it up over there so maybe he helps him get over the hump i just i don't know you got to get more and you had all the chips all you had to do was force teams to trade you players they were uncomfortable trading to show that they were serious about competing this year and they made it so easy for all four teams to say oh yeah no brainer deal all four of those teams did not send mlb ready guys over because they're trying to compete now you have to force them to to you know part ways with their best prospects because it's the only way you know that they're actually wanting to win right now, but they got four gifts. All four teams got won that trade because they didn't feel uncomfortable saying yes.
0: Yeah. I like, I'm not a big prospect guy, so I don't know like the San Francisco guys. I don't know what they project to be. I did a little bit of looking on the other ones, the collection of talent they got back. It is it, it, like, it's weird to me, I guess, because you have from the white Sox, you got Nick Madrigal and you got uh, Cody Hoyer, Nick Madrigal. Like I said, don't think he'll ever be a star, but he could very well be a guy that can play second base for you for 12 years because his, the skills that he does have, I would say, tend to age well. He's not going to rely on super quick bat speed or you know above average burner speed in the field, but it plays, and he could be a good piece of a, contrib- a good contributor on a team, like you saw this year when he was batting ninth for the White Sox. Cody Hoyer, I think, has a high ceiling. Real good sinker, nasty stuff. Kind of struggled a bit this year, but he was lights out last year. But then you look like the Mets, they got Pete Crow Armstrong, who was a first round pick out of high school last year. The Yankees, they got a 24 year old in high A and then a teenage outfielder. So I don't like it's just it's a weird collection of talent without like a it seems like without like a set like objective of what they're getting out of these guys. They didn't get all teenagers. They didn't get all major league about to be major league guys. It was like I don't know. It's kind of weird to me.
1: It just feels like they didn't counter offer. Yep. I feel like they just took whatever the team was like. Yeah. I mean, I, the, I feel like all of these teams, all four of the teams probably could have sent them worse prospects and the Cubs still would have said yes. And yep. that's what bugs me. And, you know, even more so Theo wanted no part of this, which is why he got out when he did. <laughs>
0: just like you um, did in Boston.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So um, I don't know. I think that um, we're just seeing that, Jed and Theo, I guess, they're both just, you know, not good negotiators. I mean, that's, you know, two two to two and a half trades in a row with the White Sox where they're on the wrong side of it alone, let alone all the other trades that they've made, too. So, end rant, I guess. Um, but it's a real bummer to see those guys not in the uniform. Do, you, do I, Did I want them to kind of clean house a little bit? Yeah. Um, I think it was kind of like the the when the White Sox traded Quintana Sale and Eaton. It's like, well, why couldn't these guys win together? I think yep. that's the same the same thing, right? But now these guys are all going to be stars on on other teams, so it begs the question: Why couldn't they win in Chicago? Which they did, but they should have won more. Um, so, which really proves that a World Series is really really special because yep. even those same guys can not do it again for like five, like five years in a row. You know.
0: Here's something I'd like to get your take on because I think we kind of talked about this in our group chat last week. And for me, when I saw the Rizzo trade, I thought guy who's been with the team basically for a decade, kind of like the, you know, like the captain type guy, kind of parallel to me, H- Jose Abreu with the White Sox. Although I don't I don't necessarily think the fan base holds, the Cubs fan base holds Anthony Rizzo in the same light as White Sox fans do Jose Abreu. It just like for me, so for me, that was like, wow, they're like selling this guy off for, I mean, I saw a 24 year old in high a. I, the Minors are weird this year with the pandemic. But I guess kind of with that in mind, what would, of the guys that are traded, who do you think, is someone you would have wanted to play with the Cubs their whole career. Like, I guess which one hurt the most?
1: Bias. 100% bias. Because I think they already fractured the relationship with Bryant. So either, um, unless you signed him to more than he's worth, he wasn't going to stick around. Rizzo, I think, um, I disagree with you. I think Cubs fans hold Rizzo in a higher regard than White Sox fans hold the Braves simply because um, they are willing to put up with his bad play and still call him, like, the great, you know, like, the best player we have, right? I mean, for the last, you know, three years, he was a 271, I think, career batter with the Cubs, but a lot of that came early on in, like, 2013, 2014, of hitting, you know, closer to 300, and then he's been, like, a 235 to 245 hitter the last three or four years, but still, everyone's, like, you know, put a C on his chest, he's the captain, sign him forever, this kind of guy. I was okay with the Rizzo thing. I just thought he was going to I thought they were going to keep him just because they're going to. He's what puts asses in the seats. Yep. I think that's why. So the one I'm most upset about is Baez, 100, percent because I thought that, as I talked about last week, I thought he was going to be the only one to stay. I mean, they've been so high on Miguel Amaya in the in the minors for to, to be our next catcher that I just figured that Contreras was going to be gone too. So I do. I don't know. Yeah, if that answers your question. Yeah. One Baez yeah. and two. Yeah, the the Rizzo thing.
0: Yeah. I think that makes sense. Cause I think yeah, like we had talked about bias is like the guy where it's like, if you want, I mean, I think Rizzo, yeah, he is the kind of the longer track record, but I think if you want an exciting player that people will still watch it, Baez bias is the guy he may not, you know, he has had some down years, but still like he's liable or liable is not the right word. Uh, he has the potential to basically do something special on any given night, which you know, is important when you're in a rebuild, because if you don't have guys like that, nobody's going to sh- show up, but
1: he's the most exciting player in baseball. If you ask me, um, not the best player in baseball, obviously yep. there's way better, but a lot of the way better players are just boring. So um, you got, you've got basically him and Tatis who are and, and Vladdy who are like always super exciting and super into it. And then, yeah. So to send him to yeah New York, which uh, the Mets are technically a Cubs rival if you ask any of our dads. So that was, uh, <laughs> that was bad too. Uh, George Anton, very upset. I'm sure Jim Norland also very upset that Javier Baez is a New York Met right now.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, trust me, coming out of this side of the, uh, being out of the, I mean, although the guys, the Sox fire sailed a few years ago, were never uh part of a winning team. I, I feel where you're at right now. And I do not envy that position
1: for sure. Okay. Let's get, uh, let's get one of us happy now. Talk to me, Pat, about your thoughts on the white Sox at the deadline.
0: I, I think they killed it. I mean, obviously you can always do more with trades. Like, I mean, you could be the Dodgers trading for Max Scherzer. You can always do something over the top. But the, what the White Sox did was they addressed what they needed. They set themselves up, s- up for success this season um, and next with the guys they ended up getting. And they didn't cost anyone, well, Cody Hoyer being the exception, anyone that was going to help them win this year. And while like Cody Hoyer is a good piece for the bullpen, when you have Craig Kimbrell, Liam Hendricks, Garrett Crochet when he's on, Michael Kopech, Aaron Bummer when he's on, you don't need Cody Hoyer in the bullpen. Like That's very expendable. Um, I remember, um, when the trade first went down, I thought, I thought it was going to be crochet, but the thought of Madrigal crossed my head because of Cesar Hernandez, who they got from Cleveland, which I mean, just, I'm just going to step back for a second and think of how Cleveland in second place right now, albeit by nine games, sent their leadoff hitter to the team that is leading them in the division for basically a double a starting pitcher kind of funny to see how that works nowadays but in any event Cesar Hernandez who's a left-handed bat with power not uh, about an average league hitter um gold glove defensive player bats left-handed or switch hitter and has an option for next year second base is covered now so they don't for the next two years second base is covered Craig Kimbrell is here for two years and I I, I honestly don't know to Paris contract I think it's I, I think it's I, one
1: year I think he's okay. a
0: rental. okay okay yeah, which could be wrong, I mean, but I think he's a rental they gave up peanuts for him so it doesn't really matter but I mean, they, the things they needed was they needed a second baseman because you can't go into the playoffs with like Lourie Garcia be, being an everyday player. I just I don't think you can do that. And they had Andrew Vaughn playing second in Kansas City this series because of the injuries. Like that, you can't do that. Um, so they addressed that. They got a power bat, which is something they need. Hernandez is now tied with Abreu for the team lead in home runs, which makes no sense at all. But it is what it is. And the bullpen. I mean, it's. It, I I don't even think it's arguable. They have the best back end of the bullpen in Major League Baseball right now. Easily. Hall of Fame closer in Craig Kimbrell. Liam Hendricks, who's arguably the best reliever in baseball the last two, three years. And I mean, had he had a longer track record, maybe a Hall of Famer. But two guys, not only that are dominant, that miss bats like crazy. They're both striking out over 13 per nine this year. It was a a dream uh, deadline. And I mean, magical hurts, but you didn't have to give up anyone with immense star power like Michael Kopak or Andrew Vaughn to do it. And yeah, Kimbrell's around next year. So I, I know I'm going around in circles with Tom am talking about this, but I think if you were going to draw up a perfect deadline for the White Sox, this is about as close as you could have gotten in a realistic scenario. And it really got to that point with the Kimbrell trade. It was a nice deadline before him, and it, it really got over the top with Craig Kimbrell.
1: I'm glad you highlighted their hand in this thing. I wanted him to be a cub for the last couple of years now because um, of the way he tore it up in yep. Philly. Um, he was like my fantasy baseball second baseman for like three straight years <laughs> and he was always available late and he was always betting three Oh two and hitting 20 homers. So great pickup. I like him yep. a lot. Um, yeah. And I was going to comment on that too. The, you know, the guardians, the Indians um, trading within the division. Um, I thought that was pretty wild and, you know, nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. Uh yeah, the Kimbrel thing, obviously, and and Henry So basically, what you've what the White Sox have just done is they have matched the bullpen of the 15 Royals, and they've basically matched the bats of those Giants teams slash 16 Cubs. So yep. now you have the combination of those teams, and if with that deadline, if they do not win the World Series, it's not just make the World Series; it is now win the World yep. Series, and maybe and if it goes to seven, it's almost a disappointment.
0: Yep. I would say, yeah, I. I think because the thing now that you have, and I think what really is what the Kimbrell addition does that really sets it apart, and to pair it two because he gives them depth, you don't really need to use Michael Kopech as an eighth inning guy anymore. He was relegated to that because of the inconsistencies in the bullpen, but you think about where they're at now with this bullpen, you have uh, Carlos Rodon and Lance Lynn and Lucas Giolito who are all three like Cy Young caliber guys, Giolito not so much this year, uh, and assuming Rodon and Lynn keep it up, and then you have either Dallas Keuchel or Dylan Cease in the fourth spot, other guy going to the bullpen. You need your starters to give you like five innings now in the playoffs. That's pretty much 15 Royals, hence
1: 2015 Royals. That's all they had to do.
0: Yeah. And let's say like Dallas Keuchel starting game, he gets hit around. You bring in Michael Kopech in the third. Like that's, there's not many teams that have a weapon like that coming out of the bullpen. And assuming you get Aloy back full speed timing, Robert back full speed timing, Grandall able to hit anywhere near where he was when he got hurt. Yeah. It's going to be hard to match up with them in the American league. And I'm, I mean, I'm psyched for it. I had this fear in the back of my head, I think, just being a Sox fan, that uh, they weren't going to do anything, and I'm very happy that got laid to rest.
1: Yeah, they uh, they kind of had that reputation at the trade deadline, like the, the Green Bay Packers doing free agency. They'll just kind of stick with what they have and do their best, but they got aggressive. The timing couldn't be better. Um, I think, yeah, I think the American League is theirs to lose. The National League is just better this year. Yep. Um, so it'll be hard to it'll – it'll be interesting to see – this isn't the last question, uh, but it's like it. Who do you want in the World Series, given that I think now the White Sox should be the AL champions?
0: I would say if I had to pick one of the teams in the NL,
1: I... And, I contending teams. You can't just pick, like, the Diamondbacks or
0: anything. But yeah. I think the number one choice for me would be whoever the hell comes out of the East, so the Mets right now. I think just in terms of who the Sox would match up with, especially if the Grom's hurt, then it's like... I mean, that's a no-brainer for me then i would say second to that i honestly might go with the padres just because of how bad their starting pitching has been i think that their hitting obviously is out of this world but tatis might be hurt now he's potentially having shoulder surgery i think if that's the case i don't think they get out of that uh, nl west gauntlet side of the bracket in the playoffs but i would probably put the Padres second then
1: yeah um Surprised? Not I. I'm still. I mean, now I'm not. Yep. But I didn't think the Giants. I until they got Bryant. I didn't think they were for yep. real. So,
0: I mean, especially with the Dodgers and a Padres improving at the deadline.
1: Yeah. So, um, and then last, not last question, but um, who is who are you most scared of in the American League now?
0: Right now, I I. I I am leaning towards saying the Astros just probably because of what they did to us when we played them in Houston. Although, I mean, if I remember correctly, all they really did was get Kendall Graveman from Seattle. I don't, I'm not remembering any other trades that they did. A made.
1: bizarre move too, by the way, for it to yeah. trying to make the playoffs.
0: I don't. Yeah. I, the, I mean, I, I guess segueing for a second, the Mariners trading away Kendall Graveman and then trading for Diego Castillo from Tampa Bay makes basically no sense. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, I would still say in the AL Houston is up there. Well, I think we talked about this. So either last time or the time before, if the Yankees were to get there, they would scare me now with Gallo and Rizzo in that lineup playing at Yankee Stadium. Yeah. Like the Gallo trade, I get what they were doing. The Rizzo one, I still think is a little bit weird, but if they get there, you know, Cole's pitching out of this world, Chapman gets back to what he's doing. The Yankees are going to be a tough out in the playoffs.
1: You just reminded me too. I got to go check eBay for all the Texas Rangers Joey Gallo jerseys that haven't been burned yet. <laughs> uh, it's kind of a thing I do where a player gets traded from a team and all their fans get mad and sell their stuff super cheap online. So um, if, they, if, do it. if they don't burn it, you can get a nice Joey Gallo for like 15 bucks. Um, so in any case, yeah. Um, I think it's a pretty good way to close out the, uh, the trade deadline talk. It was surely um, a lot of movement through Chicago, a lot of phone calls, a lot of. I don't know if they still fax, but I'm sure they do. Um, in, in any case, uh, you know, tail of two cities within one city, I guess, is the best way to put it. So um, yeah, I, no, I just kind of want like the giants to win it all, but who knows? Anyway, um, moving on, of course, to our player of the week. Who do you have, Pat?
0: So I have Subby Zavala. Uh, I think for me, it really, I mean, it's all down to Saturday, but there's a couple of reasons I picked him besides that. Um, this week, in the last seven days, Sebi Zavala started, I think, six out of the, well, at this point, eight days. Uh, six of those eight games over Zach Collins. Um, not sure those of you who may not be as uh, well-versed in the Sox proceedings this year, but after Grandall got hurt, they went the defensive catcher route. And instead of bringing back up Yermeen, who then had the whole retirement saga, they went with Sebi Zavala, who's been known pretty much throughout his entire time in the minors as a really good defensive catcher, but somebody who just cannot hit to save their lives. And then Saturday, he hits three home runs, gets another hit. So he's four for four with like 13 total bases. He has six RBIs, has had a head of grand slam in there. And now he's at least forcing the issue with Zach Collins, who has been struggling all year and whose calling card had been that he was a good hitter, which I think a lot of people start talking about it. If Savalas can hit like that, he's not going to obviously every game that's impossible. But if he has the potential to hit like that, and he's an exponentially better defensive catcher, it makes no sense to keep Zach Collins back there as the backup catcher and in the playoffs which I think is a very interesting development for this season because if you would have told me a few months ago that Sebi Zavala is who I would want as the backup catcher in the playoffs, I would have called you crazy. But uh, after a three-home-run game on a Saturday in July, uh, that's where my head will be. So, yeah, for me, it's Sebi Zavala.
1: Yeah, I don't know if Zavala is going (laughs) to be that kind of offensive production. That game reminds me of when DeAndre Navarro hit three home runs (laughs) against the White Sox, right? Like, you're not going to get that anymore. But it's good to have him on defense. Um, my, My player of the week is somewhat under protest uh, because it's three guys, actually. It's Anthony Rizzo, Javier Baez, and Chris Bryant, who all were on the team at the beginning of the week. So, um, and now they're tearing it up with their new teams. And we've talked about that, and we'll leave it at that. But um, Rafael Ortega, honorable mention for the same reasons, three home runs and a loss. Love to see it.
0: This is like uh, Victor Crum catching the Golden Snitch against Ireland and still losing the game. Hate to see it. Wow. Yeah. OK. <laughs>
1: anyway, uh, you know, we we, knew, we know we after that segue, that segue, we're, we're going to have to act, I'll have to go first now based on um, the way my LinkedIn player profile thinks and probably hates <laughs> Harry Potter. Um, but in any case, uh, LinkedIn player profile is when we uh, go through the lives of a former Cub, former White Sox and uh, using their LinkedIn as a primary source. Maybe you will invoke some fun memories. Um Pat knows who my guy's all about because we talked about it before the show. But my guy is uh, Sean Boski, Boski or Bosky spelled B O S K I E. He was a cub from 1990 to 1994, uh, that 94 season being the strike season, where clearly the Montreal Expos were the favorite to win the World Series. Um, but in any case, He started uh, his career with Chicago Cubs, then went to Philly, Seattle, uh, the California Angels from 95 to 96, uh, Baltimore Orioles and the aforementioned Montreal Expos. He was a pitcher with a 49 and 63 career record, uh, 514 career ERA and 494 strikeouts. couple interesting facts about him is that uh, Boski made his major league debut in 1990 versus the Astros. He pitched a five hit complete game uh, while collecting two hits himself. So clearly that was might've been the peak of his career based on his stats alone. Um, and then interestingly enough as well on September 695, Boski was the starting pitcher when the angels played the Orioles on the evening that Cal Ripken jr. Broke Lou Gehrig's consecutive games played streak of 2,130. Ripken hit a home run off Boskey in the fourth, making it that much more exciting. And Ripken's third game in a row, in which he hit a home run, so uh, he ran into a hot Ripken, ready to break a record. In any case, he retired uh, from baseball in 1998. So we'll hop over to his LinkedIn, where things got very exciting for him. Um, so we'll we'll start actually at um, his uh, his career section it just says professional baseball player from 1986 to 2001 so there's definitely some minor league stints after the MLB retirement he stuck around a little bit and then he uh took a different route a pivot if you will um towards uh um you know conservatism and faith he was the VP field development the for the alliance for defending freedom which is um for 10 years actually uh is uh so ADF is a servant ministry building allegiance to keep the door open for the spread of the gospel by transforming the legal system and advocating for religious liberty, the sanctity of life, and of course, marriage and the family. Then he switched again to head of investor relations for pure flicks. He started making movies about his love of uh, Christianity. It says pure flicks entertainment strives to impact the global culture for Christ through media. Uh, he switched again after six years of doing that to be a partner in Pinnacle Peak Pictures. So, Triple P, a little tough there, in Scottsdale, Arizona, doing the same thing. So, if you read his uh, LinkedIn description, it doesn't talk about baseball. All it says is, I have the privilege of coordinating communication as investors and reinforcing the relationships that provide the financial resources for pure flicks produce distribute and acquire christ-centered movies for the sole purpose of changing our culture for christ since hollywood has played a major role in shaping our current culture by controlling most of the media we experience today i couldn't be more enthusiastic (laughs) about helping deliver relevant storytelling of a higher calling in life so that more people will receive in hope of knowing god exclamation point does this guy know how to party or what any, anyway, um, <laughs> Sean Boski, uh, not the uh, not the usual LinkedIn player profile, but a, uh, an interesting one nonetheless. And a guy who follows what he believes—you can't knock a guy for doing that. Anyway, any thoughts there, Pat?
0: I think, and I'm I'm going to go to the limb here. We're going to have a couple firsts this week as a preview of my LinkedIn player. I think he is the first uh, moving picture mogul we've had as a feature, so that's pretty interesting.
1: We've definitely had a couple guys move into acting, but yep. not um, not producing and um, directing uh, and Call stopping the stopping the corrupt media.
0: That's, I mean, he's checking all the boxes right there.
1: He's got it covered. All right, Pat, now that we've had so much fun talking about that, uh, who is the White Sox LinkedIn player profile
0: this week? Yeah, I got a lot to live up to here. So I'm going to, I you know, obviously we'd have to dig back through all the episodes to figure this out for sure. But I'm willing to say that I am having our oldest or, most long ago career as the honoree for our Lincoln player. And I'm going with Ron Schuler, who is a player for the White Sox in 1978 and 79, the White Sox GM for most of the nineties. And he was an assistant GM for the Cubs in 2003 and 2004. So he has made his way around town a pretty good amount. So I'll just get into his background a little bit for those of you who may not know or may have forgotten. Uh, he was picked in the 12th round of the 1966 draft by the Pirates. Uh, never signed a contract to play and then was taken by the Braves in the third round a year later. So he, you know, definitely improved his stock. Um, his Wikipedia page also says that he threw a no hitter in double A, which makes me think that he wrote that in there himself. Cause who the hell else would know that <laughs> uh, Bounced around the major leagues a lot uh, played for Atlanta in 72 and 73 Philly from 74 to 76, Minnesota in 77. And then at the last stop on his career, was with the White Sox in '78 and '79. Um, he, you know, had a pretty unremarkable major league career. He won 40 games, lost 40, set, 48. Um, he had 11 saves, and with the White Sox, he had a combined of negative one WAR in those two years. So, never really that much of an above-average player at all. I think his best year WAR wise was like 1.8, so like right around league average. Um, but in any event, probably most of what he's remembered for is what he did after he was done playing. Uh, he was the pitching coach of the White Sox in 1979 um, and then was there through 81. In 82, he moved on to Oakland to be their pitching coach, uh, went to Pittsburgh. And then a little bit later after that, he worked in Oakland with Sandy Alderson and then became the GM of the White Sox in 89, where he would stay for most of the decade. Uh, somewhat successful decade there, I guess you could call it. 1993, obviously they made the playoffs. In 94, they probably would have. And then he built most of the team in 2000 before he stepped down and handed the reins off to Ken Williams. Um, Like I said, it went on to the Cubs in 2003, bounced around a little bit after that. And I believe his last stop was in 09 with the Nationals um, as a special advisor. So looking into his LinkedIn now a little bit, um, he has all of his major league stops there with the Braves from 67 to 73. He's got his height weight where he's from. Uh, First, he also notes he was the first player in the 1967 draft to be signed. Um, had a fine rookie campaign with the Braves. This is all his writing, not mine. in 72 ranking second on staff behind Phil Necro in ERA. His best game in the minors was a 2-0 no-hit nine-inning victory for Shreveport versus San Antonio. Uh, with the date on there, he was – what the – he has it on his LinkedIn that he was 21-5 in American Legion baseball. Love it. That's uh, – okay, that's surprising. Goes through the rest of his major league stops, so I won't go through all of that. Oh, my God, I just saw this for the first time. For his time with the White Sox, he has a PDF file that is how he performed against Hall of Fame players in his career. So it's literally just a clipping from Baseball Reference of like stats against John Johnny Bench, Tony Perez, Willie McCovey, Lou Brock, who hit 429 off him, absolutely smoked him. Uh, Rod Carew hit 750 off him. So I don't know what the purpose of this document is, Uh, but it's on there if you ever want to see. after that, yeah, like I said, pitching coach for the the Pirates, he's got on there nine years with the A's as a pitching coach and an assistant GM. And then the White Sox, he, as the senior vice president and GM, uh, basically has all of his accomplishments. Their longest ten-year GM in the AL at one point, uh, 527 winning percentage with the White Sox. Um, talks about hiring Jerry Manuel, And then he has, let's see, I'm just going to read this paragraph because this is pretty fun. With the White Sox. Schuler played two very different roles as GM. In the early 1990s, his focus was on finding players to sustain the team's success. Later, he helped develop an organization from the inside out uh, with a deep pool of young talent. The White Sox were named Organization of the Year in 2000 and featured the Player of the Year in pitcher John Rauch. I don't don't think that's true. There's no way John Rauch was the MLB Player of the Year. But uh, anyways... Uh, he talks about the veterans that he signed, Jim Abbott, Harold Baines, Albert Bell, Ellis Burks, Mike Devereux, Charlie Huff, among others. Uh, I see Jose Valentin in there. After that, went to the Cubs 0304, uh, 3 senior advisor to the GM with, for the, with the Cardinals, senior advisor to the GM with the Giants, and finally a scout and assistant GM for the Nationals and the Orioles. So after all of that, I think that's really all there is to talk about there. I don't want to hold on to anymore, but kind of an interesting link in there. Definitely like showing your stats against hall of famers is kind of a weird flex when you were not that good of a major league pitcher, but Hey, you uh, teach their own.
1: You got to own it. Uh, he's probably why Derek part, partly why Derek Lee was a Cub. So um, okay, that's right around the time. So bringing it all together and speaking oh, of bringing it all together. One, one something one else?
0: Thing I, yeah. I forgot to mention this, which that's a, that's on me. Uh, funnily enough. And I think it, really uh, is a good time to bring it up. Now, he was the White Sox GM when they made the white flag trade back in 1997, which for those of you who may not remember, they traded away, uh, let's see, yeah, they traded away Wilson Alvarez, Danny Darwin, and Roberto Hernandez to Cleveland. Uh, yeah, the to Cleveland. Basically, it was like a give up trade. They traded away a bunch of players for prospects to Cleveland with Reinsdorf saying, anyone who thinks we can catch Cleveland is crazy. Um, kind of a thing that I think has scarred White Sox fans for a long time, and he was the, uh, I guess, the architect behind all those trades as the general manager. So I definitely an apt time to bring that up.
1: Yeah, everything changes and everything remains the same. Brutal, uh, I think. This would, this would qualify for a white fly trade as, trade as well, even though they are not really in the race for the division. But in any case, white flag to the, the what would have been dynasty. Uh, in any case, now we are safe to wrap up this episode. We went a little longer than expected, but you had to expect that with the trade deadline and all the big news that was happening. In any case, we will end the episode like we always do. This is probably one of my favorite questions I've ever come up with. Oh, boy. Um, so uh, here you go. Pat has not heard it before. It is... Game seven against, does it matter, World Series, Milwaukee Brewers, let's say, or, you know, New York Mets or whoever. Who closes out the last inning with a one-run lead? Craig Kimbrell or Liam
0: Hendricks? I, they're both fresh. Okay. So assuming they're both fresh, I would lean towards Hendricks. kimbrel has been there and done that. You don't have a bad option. This is really just like flip a coin, and I don't really care what side it lands on. I'm going to go with Hendricks just because I love the edge he brings. And I think that's probably the biggest difference besides Kimbrell, obviously having a longer track record, better overall career. Kimbrell is basically, and I think they pointed this out on the broadcast today, is like the steady hand kind of doesn't really show much emotion out there on the field goes out there, does his bird thing, throws the ball, strikes people out. Hendricks is a psychopath. He's out there like screaming, yelling about everything. I don't know if you, well, I don't think you've, probably not seen it, but now when he comes in from guaranteed rate field, they freaking turn all the lights off. They play his intro music and they have the fricking spotlight going around the field as it blasts. I, I love the edge he brings. Um, I, like I said, you can't go wrong, but I'm going with Liam, Liam Hendricks mainly because I think he is the type of like crazy person you want out there uh, to close out the game.
1: So I'm going to go the opposite and my rationale is exactly the opposite. Is <laughs> that, um, I think, In a game one scenario, and a game two scenario, you do want that psychopath out there. You want him to set the tone for the rest of the series. In game seven, you want the steady guy. You do not want emotion to be part of it at all because it is the most emotional moment in the entire season. In fact, in the entire careers of guys, for example, the Cubs brought out or Chapman, they used him up too much. So the ninth inning was, and of course, or not the ninth inning, but the 11th inning or, you know, 10th or whatever Um, in game seven, And Carl Edwards Jr. comes out, kind of an emotional pitcher, couldn't get it done. So you bring in Mike Montgomery, and he gets, you know, the rest is history. Ground ball, Bryant, now Giant, and Rizzo, now Yankee, um, to end it. So I think you want the steady Eddie in there. But it's it's a good problem to have. Let's just put it that way.
0: I agree with you on that. It's much better than, like, where their bullpen was at a few years ago. Or, like, two days ago.
1: Yeah. For sure. All right. That concludes our episode, Pat. Thank you so much. I know it was an exciting one for you. Uh, you can listen to these podcasts on Spotify, Apple podcasts, or uh, the website Uh We're going to start turning out a little bit more content. We've been saying that the last couple of weeks, but in any case, uh, all I could say is buckle up Cubs fans. It's going to be tough for a little bit, but we'll be back. And we, and you know how patient we are. Um, so in any case, all I could say is go Cubs, go White Sox, go MLB. And of course, Yachty Molina is not a Hall of Famer, even if John Lesser is the one throwing pitches to him. have a great week.
0: come on. Oh baby, don't you wanna go? Come on, a oh baby, don't you wanna go? Back to that same old place. Sweet home, Chicago.